You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again. This is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the August 2021 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this broadcast. This month, we will begin with two interviews on COVID-19 vaccination in patients with rheumatic diseases. The first is by Dr. Glenn Hazelwood on behalf of the Canadian Rheumatology Association. He'll be giving an overview of their paper entitled Canadian Rheumatology Association Recommendations for the Use of COVID-19 Vaccinations for Patients with Autoimmune Rheumatic Diseases. My first question is, could you just highlight the important findings of the article? Uh, yeah, thanks so much for for uh, having me. Yeah, the the main finding is is quite simple. Um, the main message from the article is that vaccines for COVID nineteen are recommended for patients with uh, autoimmune rheumatic diseases. The panel, um, the multidisciplinary. So we had a panel with um, rheumatologists, patients, uh, vaccine experts, and methodologists. And the panel was unanimous that the benefits uh, outweighed any um, theoretical harms from the vaccines. Um, I think another key message was the panel was very clear of uh, that patients shouldn't have to go through additional steps or barriers to access um, the vaccine. You know, the, the vaccine rollout, of course, is very different from typical vaccines where you sort of have a, um, you know, they're they're out and patients come into your clinic and you can have um, sort of uh, lengthy discussions with people. Here it was, you know, everybody has the vaccine available now and we really wanted to avoid um, any delays that may occur through additional steps. Second interview is with Dr. James Galloway, who is a senior author on a paper entitled COVID-19 Vaccination Landscape, What a Rheumatologist Needs to Know. Your editorial ends with key, me key takeaway messages, and could you please summarize them and update them as you see fit? As I mentioned, the, the, it is a very timely question as across the globe, we're seeing this enormous rollout of vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. The, the key messages that we wanted to convey in the editorial is that whilst there are definitely uncertainties around the vaccines in our patients, patients on immunosuppression, particularly uncertainty in terms of how effective they'll be, the risks are outweighed by the benefits. And, and even though vaccine immunogenicity may be lower, it is likely still to be of enormous benefit. The, the other thing we, we talked about is whether there was any rationale to choose one vaccine over another. And our, our message was at the moment there isn't evidence to support choosing one vaccine over another and really a message to take whichever vaccine is offered if you are a patient um, with, with access to a vaccine. And, and the other thing that we, we touched on was about whether there should be any DMARD interruption. And again, there is at the moment still a lack of evidence, although there's a little bit of data from methotrexate interruption that some clinicians might use to, to inform their, their, their plans. I hope you enjoyed listening to Drs. Hazelwood and Galway 
giving overviews of COVID-19 vaccination in patients with rheumatic diseases. Now I'll move along to the next paper to highlight this month, which is entitled Impact of Comorbid Conditions on Healthcare Expenditure and Work-Related Outcomes in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis and is by Vu and colleagues. Comorbidities are common in patients with RA and may alter quality of life, may be associated with early mortality, and can increase the economic burden of the disease. The two most common comorbidities found in patients with RA are hypertension and depression. The aim of this study was to evaluate the impact of comorbid conditions on direct healthcare costs and work-related outcomes in patients with RA. To achieve this aim, the investigators analyzed data from the U.S. Medical Expenditure Panel Survey over a 10-year period. They obtained data from 4,967 adults with rheumatoid arthritis. In this cohort, the majority were women aged greater than equal to 55 years, white and non-smokers. They found the most common morbidities were hypertension, any disorder of lipid metabolism, followed by diabetes, and then depression. The least common morbidities were stroke, heart failure, and peptic ulcer disease. Overall, 83.4% of the patients had at least one comorbidity. They found that comorbid conditions were associated with higher annual health care expenditure, lower likelihood of employment, a higher rate of absenteeism, and overall a lower income. Although only 3% of the cohort developed heart failure. Heart failure was associated with the highest incremental annual health care expenditure and the lowest likelihood of being employed contained compared to those without heart failure. Please read this article to see how each of the individual comorbidities affected health care costs, employment, work, absenteeism, and annual income. The third paper to highlight is entitled A Phase Three Randomized Study of a Premolas, an Oral Phosphodiesterase 4 Inhibitor for Active Angulosing Spondylitis, and is by Taylor and colleagues. We are always looking for new oral therapies for all inflammatory arthritis, including ankylosing spondylitis. A Premolas is an oral phosphodiesterase 4 or PBE4 inhibitor, which is licensed in many countries for the use in the treatment of adults with plaque psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and Bechet's disease. In a phase through two study of 36 patients, a premolas was shown to be possibly effective but, and was well tolerated. This initial study then led, the, led to the conduction of this phase three double-blind placebo-controlled trial to determine the true efficacy and safety of a premolast in patients with active 
AS. The primary endpoint of the study was the ACES 20 response at week 16, and a secondary endpoint was the radiographic outcome at week 104, as assessed by the MSOS. In total, 490 patients with active AS were randomized in the study at a one to one to one ratio of placebo to a premolast at 20 milligrams twice daily and a premolast 30 milligrams twice daily. At week 16, the primary endpoint of the ACES-20 response was not met and neither was the MSAS at week 104. The most frequently reported adverse events through week 104 were diarrhea, nasal pharyngitis, upper respiratory tract infection, and nausea. In this paper, the authors give more details on the results of the study, and in the discussion, they highlight the difficulty in extrapolating data from early studies and preclinical studies to clinical studies. I have highlighted this article for two reasons. One, that negative studies are important to have in the literature. And two, that phase three studies are required even when phase two or clinical experience suggests efficacy of a medication. Moving on, we, now, we know that pain is a common occurrence in patients with lupus, and studies have found that pain is rated as one of the most distressing symptoms in patients with lupus. Chronic pain can lead to poor quality of life, disability, and stress. The aim of this highlighted study, entitled The Problem of Pain in systemic lupus erythematosus, an explication of the role of biopsychosocial mechanisms by Felicinu and colleagues was to define biopsychosocial mechanisms of pain in SLA. The investigators conducted a cross-sectional study of 766 patients with SLA in the Georgians Organized Against Lupus, or GOAL cohort. They used patient-reported data to determine which factors which were associated with pain intensity and pain interference with daily activities, working around the house, participation in social activities, and completing household chores. The majority of patients studied were female, black, single, non-smokers, and had a reported annual income of less than 40,000 US dollars per year. The mean age of participants was 48 years. The investigators found that disease activity and oral organ damage explained 30 to 33% of the variance in pain and, inter and interference respectively. Social demographic factors accounted to her initial 49% of variance in the pain outcomes, 
Well, psychosocial beha or behavioral factors accounted for 4% of the variance. Please read this article to understand what factors, including patient age and demographic and socioeconomic factors, altered the association of disease activity and organ damage with pain intensity and interference. The authors discuss how the findings of this study in SLE patients compared to studies of pain and interference in the general population. The authors outlined the limitations of the study, which are important to read to determine the generalizability of the finding to your SLE patients. This study is accompanied by an editorial by Anser Rahman entitled, Why Do Patients with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus Suffer Pain? Dr. Raman views pain in SLA and the important messages of the paper by Valensinu and colleagues. This editorial should be read with the highlighted article. Now moving to the final paper. Although universal vaccination against hepatitis B virus, HBV, has been implemented in many countries. Surveillance studies have shown that in the general population, approximately 10% of vaccinated people do not demonstrate a serologic response to the vaccine. In addition, the use of biologic agents have been shown to accelerate the decline in the protective HBV antibody levels. The final paper I will highlight today is entitled Maintaining Hepatitis B Protection in Immunocompromised Pediatric Rheumatology and Inflammatory Bowel Disease Patients by Al Jabari and colleagues. They evaluated the serological immunity in 580 immunocompromised rheumatology and IBD patients. They then went on to assess the factors associated with non-immunity and evaluated the response to a booster in non-immune patients. Overall, 61% of the cohort had a rheumatic disease and 71% of patients with a rheumatic disease were found to be non-immune. The highest proportion of non-immune patients were aged 11 to 18 years. They did not find a difference in the percentage of non-immune patients based on either disease category, but there was a trend for an association between the different classes of immunosuppressant medications and immune status. When they boosted the non-immune patients, 68% of them converted. In the discussion, the authors compare the results of their studies to other studies in both pediatric and adult patients with rheumatic diseases and review the recommendations of the US CDC as well as ACR and ULAR recommendations for screening of patients for HBV prior to the starting of immunosuppressive. This month, we have two images in rheumatology. The first is entitled Ulcerate Perineoplastic Dermatomyositis in the Setting 
a positive transitional intermediate factor, one gamma antibody, and is by Al Elwaki and colleagues. These authors report on a 60-year-old woman who presented with severe dysphagia, symmetric proximal muscle weakness, and progressive painful ulcers on her arms, which were associated with a second recurrence of ovarian cancer. Serologically, she had positive transcriptional intermediate factor 1-gamma or TIF1-gamma antibodies, but was negative for anti-MDA5 antibodies. The image shows photographs of the lesions before and after treatment and demonstrates the characteristic histology on skin biopsy. The second image is entitled Widespread Mechanics Hands in Antisense Syndrome with Anti-OJ Antibodies and is by Shinoda and colleagues. In this article, they describe a 60-year-old man with a history of interstitial lung disease who presented with fever, cough, and a scaly hyperkeratotic rash on each of his fingers, as well as on the lateral and side and palmar surface of both hands, suggestive of mechanics hands. He had elevated muscle enzymes with circulating anti-OJ antibodies. Taken together, they made the diagnosis of antisynthetase syndrome. The image shows photographs of his hands before and after therapy and the histology of the skin biopsy. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encouraging you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles in the August 2021 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or on the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. Please watch the complete interview of Drs. Hazelwood and Galloway which are available for viewing at our website and on YouTube. If you have any questions or comments on these highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen next month to the September edition of Editor's Highlights. Thank you.